Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Stephen Roach. He's a senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center of Yale Law School, and he's the former chairman of Morgan Stanley in Asia. And I must add, he is someone whose insights and works I followed very closely when I was in the investment world, particularly working in the realm of non-Japan Asia. He's written many things. Most recently, I read something from Project Syndicate and Fortune Magazine. He's been in the Financial Times and uh, is respected throughout the media. Uh, We're here today because on November 29th, his new book, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives will be released by Yale University Press. I've had a chance to look at the book, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Steve, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Rob. So let's let's start with the inspiration. You're watching the world. Obviously, there are a lot of ominous things related to U.S., China, Ukraine, etc., etc., what got under your skin? What what inspired the create the book that you've created that I've had the good fortune to look at? Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to be as short as I can. Um, I actually uh, make note of that in the acknowledgments uh, uh, that are buried at the end of the book, which very few people ever read. Um, the book is basically an outgrowth of a thirteen year journey I've had since I joined the faculty of, of Yale in 2010. When I came to Yale after a long career on uh, Wall Street, tried to figure out, you know, what I was really most passionate about. Half my Wall Street career, I'd been the head economist for Morgan Stanley focused on the U.S. And the second half, I was the chief global economist, and I got hooked on China uh, in the late 1990s in the depths of the uh, Asian financial crisis. And I thought about what I wanted to do when I became a professor. And I said, you know, these two pieces of my career, um, you know, have something really important, uh, in common. And that is they tell a story of the relationship between the U S and China. And there are plenty of people who know more about China than I do. There are plenty of people uh, I had, well, I hesitate to say this, who know more about the U.S. economy than I do, but let's just say that's true. Um, but I thought my strength was really in the overlap, the interplay between them. So I started working on that and teaching about it. Um, I set up a popular course at Yale called The Next China, which was um, uh, uh, a large lecture class for a number of years until covid Um, but, um, you know, I found that, you know, that resonated a lot with the students and with my own research interests. I wrote my first book on the relationship in 2014. I took a stab at, you know, characterizing the relationship as a codependent relationship. Um, and I, where, you know, the U S depends on China, China depends on the U S and I ended that, that book in, late 2014 with a warning saying, look, you know, codependent relationships don't work out well uh, unless both partners pay a lot of attention to themselves. Um, And there's a real risk that um, this is going to end in conflict. And as the conflict broke out in the open, almost immediately after that uh, uh, book was published in 2014, then I just focused a lot on the dynamics of the conflict, uh, why it was um, uh, intensifying, where it might go in the end, and um, how could we get out of it. 
without a catastrophic ending uh, for the U.S., China, and the rest of the world. So that's sort of the, um, not so short, but uh, the, the intro to why I wrote the book. Well, I'm, uh, I'm grinning as I listen to you because uh, I'm reminded my good friend Orville Schell uh, wrote a book with John Delury called Wealth and Power. And when I, I looked at your work preparing for this, there were many echoes in that. But he turned me on to something, which was a website called China Heritage. And there was a man named Jeremy Barmy that set up something in 2021. And it was like a special episode called Spectres and Souls. And it resonated with a famous quote about a German man, Romain Roland, who had dealt with the tensions and the disintegration of allegiance within Europe during the 1920s and 30s. And his biographer, uh, Stefan Zweig, coined a term called the invisible republic of the spirit. He said, the invisible republic of the spirit, the universal fatherhood, has been established among races and among nations. Its frontiers are open to all who wish to dwell therein. Its only law is that of brotherhood. Today, we could also put sisterhood in there. Its only enemies are hatred and arrogance between nations. Whoever makes his home within the invisible realm becomes a citizen of the world. He is the heir, not of one people, but of all peoples. Henceforth, he is an indweller in all tongues and all countries, in the universal past and the universal future. I, As I was going through your book, I wanted to nominate you for... Uh, a cast in the Invisible Republic of the Spirit, and I think I think you're onto some very powerful themes. You talk about false narratives. What is the what? Let's go to both sides. You pick uh, who goes first. But what's the false narrative that China is resonating with? What's the false narrative the United States is resonating with at this juncture? Well. Um... You know, before I answer that, which, which I definitely will answer, because the bulk of the book, some eight chapters, is is all about the details of these false narratives. Um, you might wonder, you know, what is it about the false narrative that attracts both the U.S. and China? And the um, the answer to that, you know, in in my opinion, is that <clears throat> both nations you know, as strong as they are, the number one and number two economies in the world, and uh, probably the, the same now in, in terms of military capabilities, um, are surprisingly vulnerable uh, because of issues that I'll get into when I describe uh, the false narratives. And rather than face up to that vulnerability and take care of their own uh, economies or sort of uh, deal with uh, the insecurities that they face, um, it is politically expedient for both nations to blame somebody else for their shortcomings and for their vulnerabilities. And so we have focused on China, just as we focused on, I might add, um, Japan some 30 years ago. Um, and uh, China has focused on us for a whole series of reasons that I will get into. Uh, but when you're a, a vulnerable nation, a vulnerable economy, uh, and you don't have the strength, strength of character, strength of leadership, whatever you want to call it, to face up to your own shortcomings, it's much easier to blame the other guy uh, than um, uh, you know get on with the heavy lifting of addressing your own problems. If you want an example of that, Think about, you know, Jimmy Carter in the depths of an energy crisis in the late 70s when he said, you know, in his gray cardigan sweater on public national television, um, we have a problem in America. And, um, you know, he was trounced in the polls by uh, Ronald Reagan because he had the audacity to say that we had a problem. So anyway, um, I just wanted to get that out of the way. I have a I have a friend who's a uh, scholar of Europe, and he calls that the Bismarck model. When you can't align everybody internally, you find an outward 
enemy or counterpart and focus all realignments on meeting the challenge of that external enemy. Well, you know, let me start with the U.S., Rob, because, uh, you know, case in point, um, you look at the polling of sentiment uh, toward China, and I use the Pew Research Center as the, as the sort of the longest and most accurate of those polls. And the negative sentiment on China with respect to the American public uh, is at an all-time high in the history of this survey. And it's bipartisan. It's literally the only thing, one of the few things, I should say, that Republicans and Democrats uh, actually agree on. And it's true of all age cohorts, you know, young and old, college educated, uh, uh, uneducated, uh, male, female, you name it. China is the enemy and the intensity of that feeling uh, is um, higher than it's ever been. So what are some of the false narratives that the U.S. has with respect to China? My favorite one, and I spend a lot of time on this, um, um, you know, in the book, uh, is blaming China for our trade deficit. We have a big trade deficit in the United States. We've had a big trade deficit really um, now for, for 40 years. But the economics that I practice says that trade deficits do not come out of a vacuum. They reflect um, the lack of domestic savings uh, that an economy uh, uh, has or doesn't have, as, as in the case of, of, of China. Countries that are short of savings uh, and want to grow, and we certainly want to grow in the U.S., um, we are forced to borrow savings from overseas, and we run these big uh, balance of payments deficits to attract the capital. And the balance of payments deficit gives rise to a massive trade deficit, not with one country, as the China bashers would lead you to believe, but with many countries. Last uh, year, uh, uh, 2021, uh, we ran trade deficits with 106 countries. China was the largest, uh, although the share has come down due to the tariffs, uh, that we've imposed on uh, China, but by no means um, uh, is the only large one. And if we don't address our savings problem, and we have not done that with our massive budget deficits, then we can fix the Chinese piece of the trade problem, but it simply um, would go to other uh, trading partners, in many cases, those with uh, higher cost structures, and that ends up penalizing American companies and American consumers. So the false narrative is that there is a China fix, a bilateral fix to a multilateral problem. And it's, you know, it it's, makes no sense theoretically. And it's not what's actually happened as we've squeezed China through these uh, tariffs, large tariffs that the Trump administration uh, imposed on China and that the Biden administration has uh, uh, unfortunately uh, perpetuated. The Chinese piece goes down, but other pieces go up. Uh, trade uh, deficits with Vietnam, Mexico, uh, Canada, uh, uh, Malaysia, uh, and across the board. And the multilateral trade deficit, which is really the thing that should concern American companies and American families, has gotten worse, not better. So this is an example of a of a false narrative that has completely backfired because we've chosen to prosecute it uh, in our zeal to blame China for our domestic savings problem. So that's one example on the U.S. side. There are many more that I go into in the book, um, but I probably droned on a little bit too much about that. I'd like to. Well, I, I think I think there's a very important element of this too was the uh, notion that trade theorists have of comparative advantage. And we were bringing China into a system with a, what I might call a division of labor, a lot of foreign direct investment in labor intensive activity and so forth. But as they became interested in the realm of technology, and when I recall a, a report they put out called the China 2025 plan, 
Americans became very, very anxious. In one case, the sector where you and I have each worked, they didn't feel they were going to make the exchange rate convertible and open the markets for foreign entities to handle financial management for people within China. Number two, the interaction with Silicon Valley, as uh, underscored by the Huawei polarities, and the idea that um, which you might call the Chinese were inspiring foreign direct investment in order to steal the technology from the original plant and then expand and block the success of the foreign investors. Uh, the China 2025 plan, I remember, inspired some reports by the authors like, authors like Blackwell and Campbell at the Council on Foreign Relations, even before Donald Trump. This was something that was spin, spiraling out of control. It wasn't a caused by a Trumpian. It was maybe exacerbated there. But there, there seems to have been a sense in which America expected China to just fall into place in the division of labor that we chose for them. And I, I'm sensing that they, they had a different medium or long-term ambition that we hadn't realized. Well, I, I would completely agree with that, Rob. I think um, it's not just um, the technology um, piece of uh, the implicit agreement that we had with China uh, but when um, President Clinton pushed for uh, China to uh, be admitted to the World Trade Organization, he did that with um, the presumption that if China plays by our rules, they would become more like us uh, in um, not just in the technology area, but in <coughs> the political and social evolution of their system. Uh, and, you know, a lot of big thinkers in Washington, uh, and I would single out, uh, you know, the Democrat, uh, Kurt Campbell, um, as a leading uh, a proponent of this view, uh, have really taken great affront uh, to the fact that uh, China has not conformed to the Western value proposition uh, as we believe it should be adhered to if they want to be a member of our system, trade with us, uh, and uh, get our dollars in exchange for the goods they provide us. It's a very um, sort of self-serving uh, uh, proposition that <clears throat> did not really allow for consideration of what China's objectives were in terms of its um, economic growth and development. And that's not to say that China's, you know, the good guy in all of China's done a lot of things that um, have really pushed the edge and gone over the edge in some areas that they need to be held accountable for. Uh, and, you know, that's why we have dispute mechanisms set up to adjudicate uh, those issues. But this whole proposition of, uh, we want China to come into our system and play by our rules. And if we don't, um, we're going to close them down. Uh, seems patently uh, uh, one-sided and laced with hypocrisy. And do you sense uh, that the as China was developing, which Ma called the, the difference between wages there and in the United States started to narrow, and there was pressure within China, as around the world, to start to address uh, climate issues. And I guess what I'm asking is, were the companies from the United States with foreign direct investments in China experiencing a profit compression, not only from imitation, because I talked about that in my previous comment, but also from a rising wages and rising environmental protection and and so there, which might say their enthusiasm could have waned in that process. People like Nike and Walmart and others, did they uh, continue to defend working out a collaboration with China, or did they become demoralized as well? 
Well, I don't think they became demoralized because, you know, China was the ultimate sort of offshore efficiency solution for high cost multinationals operating in more expensive markets like the United States. And uh, to the extent that, um, you know, China developed and went, you know, further up uh, the pay scale, then uh, those efficiency considerations uh, were certainly um, uh, worth questioning, but in no way whatsoever did it change uh, the mind of retailers like Walmart to continue to source heavily uh, from low-cost, increasingly high-quality uh, uh, Chinese goods. The environmental issues that you allude to, I mean, China quickly has become, you know, the, the world's leader in greenhouse emissions. Um, and uh, there's been a growing awareness of that uh, around the world and also inside of China. Uh, but did U.S. companies stand up and say, um, we don't want to source in China because of the uh, the... <clears throat> emissions that they are spewing out into the atmosphere that are affecting all of us. I don't know of too many companies that have uh, defended the planet by rethinking their outsourcing uh, to China. And, you know, maybe that's an issue that needs to be uh, further explored. I was looking at it in a slightly different vantage point, which is they may have been we might call less enthusiastic about being in China because China was reacting to climate and those new conditions might've compressed their profit. And therefore they'd spend less time resisting the people in America who were feeling displaced by, or uh, how would I say, uh, unable to compete with China or, or preserve their own technological property rights. Well, you know, um, multinationals don't exist in a political vacuum. They can see the handwriting on the wall. They're aware of the uh, the escalation of conflict between uh, the two nations. I mean, in five years, we've gone from a trade war to a tech war to arguably the new stages of a cold war. And that makes uh, multinationals uncomfortable with their operating decisions. I mean, you know, look at... Look at Apple, for example, you know, the quintessential uh, uh, multinational production platform that uh, it produces uh, or assembles, I should say, the bulk of their most powerful revenue generator, uh, the iPhone, uh, in Guangdong province. They've started shifting some of that production uh, to uh, India, a uh, small portion of it. But they recognize the need to begin to hedge their exposure uh, to China. And now, you know, with the disruptions that are going on because of this patently uh, impractical and absurd zero COVID policy that Xi Jinping insists on defending, that has really taken a huge uh, bite out of uh, uh, production uh, uh, in uh, the the Foxconn plant in, in Zhengzhou. Uh, you know, Apple is certainly, I would imagine, uh, thinking long and hard about uh, its Chinese production and assembly exposure. We've been talking about this, not surprisingly, from the vantage point of the Americans. In your book, you talk also about the false storylines that the Chinese have about the United States. Could you share with us some of what you see is, uh, how do you say, the, the misunderstanding or, or false constructions that emanate from their side? Well, yeah, I think one of the most important ones, Rob, is that uh, China recognized um, 15 years ago that it had to rebalance its economy, become more of a consumer, less of an export and investment economy, more services, uh, less manufacturing in part because of the environmental issues that you just alluded to, uh, but also less of a surplus saver uh, and um, more 
willing to invest its saving in expanding the social safety net that its families need to become secure and confident uh, consumers. And it, you know, it made some progress, but basically the, the rebalancing um, uh, is, charitably speaking, uh, incomplete. Others might say it's failed. I would not go that far. Uh, but it, it, it remains incomplete in large part because <clears throat> I think there's been a, an unwillingness, uh, an inability to build out the social safety net that can addresses some of these long-term consumer confidence issues. And China's been reluctant to admit this, but when they do admit it, they blame it on America uh, in its efforts to contain the rise of China. And this whole notion of American containment uh, of China, while it's grounded in some of the concerns that we alluded to earlier um, in, in talking about uh, uh, our disappointment with China not playing by our rules, um, China has taken this containment complex uh, to an extreme and um, blamed America for its own failure to rebalance the structure of its economy. And if China did a better job in attending to its own economy, uh, it wouldn't have the American containment uh, uh, excuse uh, to rely on. When, uh, when I was reading your book, I, I heard echoes of earlier readings. Michael Pillsbury's book on the uh, idea that the period from the Opium War to the Japanese invasion, a century of humiliation, was going to lead to a, a almost like a nationalistic Chinese dream. And I remember myself around 2014 going to the National Museum, which you've written about, and seeing the intensity of that uh, presentation. And my Chinese friends in Beijing at that time were quite anxious that I went to see it. And there was also in your book a man named, I think it was James Truslow Adams, who created an American dream. And how were how the Chinese dream and the American dream, how do I say, different or incompatible at this point? I can see the Chinese dream had more like getting our seat back at the head table, the 100-year marathon going forward, as Pillsbury called it, was about China, in his mind, he was quite skeptical of collaboration, China taking over. Uh, Orwell Schell and John Delury are a little softer. They wanted to be back at the head table as partners in their writing from around that time. Uh, but how are you seeing that Chinese dream because the, the, we're, 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 especially when you're talking about false narratives on both sides, we're talking about psychology. We're not talking about facts. We're talking about interpretation of things. So I'm, curi I'm curious how you're seeing these two dreams catching fire at home and how we will move on to how to reconcile so that we can collaborate in the future. Well, I have, I have a long take in the book, uh, Rob, about the contrast <clears throat> between the two dreams because, you know, so much of my, my uh, approach is to um, recognize, as you just put it very well, that, that there is a psychological aspect to, you know, the, the fantasies that go into the construction of, uh, of dreams and <clears throat> how this interplay between two dreams plays out is, um, uh, I think, it adds an interesting amount of local color to the themes I try to address in the book. Um, Xi Jinping grasped the, the concept of the dream within hours of his um, appointment as general secretary of the uh, Chinese Communist Party <clears throat> Uh, in, well, 10 years ago um, this month. And um, 
he used the exhibit, which you saw, which I saw, uh, at the National Museum of China on Tiananmen Square uh, as a staging ground for expressing his aspirational views for China's future, saying that this century of humiliation is a lesson uh, for where we must go in the future. Never again should we as a nation be humiliated at the hands of, of foreigners. And we have every right as a nation to reclaim uh, our former stature uh, as the world's leading nation, uh, as he claimed China was, arguably, uh, prior to uh, the opium wars. So it was, you know, uh, a nationalistic um, uh, vision that he offered. Uh, <clears throat> it became very popular. He marketed it heavily and used it very effectively to instill uh, uh, a growing sense of nationalistic, patriotic feelings about the rise of China, not where China had come, but where it was headed. And he went on to then, you know, articulate a clear goal such that by the year 2049, which would have been some, um, I guess, um, 37 years after he was first sworn in as the party secretary, that China would be you know, at the table uh, as a great power, a great socialist nation uh, on a par with any other great power uh, in the world today. And that was the goal, the aspirational goal, which translated into a <clears throat> economic and military goal uh, for the sustained rise in China. And then he went on to articulate this in uh, strident and sometimes very belligerent terms, uh, notably at the 100th anniversary of the founding of the party in July of 2021, uh, to say basically anybody who messes with us in attempting to achieve the aspirational goals of the, uh, the Chinese dream will have to face the consequences, to use Xi's own words, of a great wall of steel forged by 1.4 billion Chinese nations. So it was a, you know, it was an aspirational message with a very tough uh, undertone. And you contrast this with the American dream, which was not articulated by uh, a politician, but by a historian and author, James Truslow Adams, that was first written about in a book called, I guess, the, the, the Epic of America in the depths of the Great Depression in the early 30s, when America was in the grips of a, uh, a deep despair that... Uh, <clears throat> coincided with, you know, uh, uh, the worst, most catastrophic economic failure in our history with an unemployment rate of 25% uh, with bread lines, with no social safety net. And um, Adams wrote of uh, an American system uh, that <clears throat> is the strongest uh, value proposition the world has ever created that ultimately can produce uh, growth and prosperity in accordance with the contribution that each of us make fairly and equitably uh, to our own society and economy. And, you know, I would imagine, you know, not being alive then, that it, that, that dream rang hollow uh, in the, the depths of the Great uh, Depression. But over time... Many American politicians, notably uh, Ronald Reagan uh, going forward, have grasped on to this um, aspirational image of the American dream, and it's become uh, <clears throat> you know, an important uh, aspect of our societal values and some of our political uh, sloganeering 
but uh, uh, I would certainly say that the American dream uh, does not um, uh, uh, compare with the, the more um, strident and nationalistic and military uh, aspirations of Xi Jinping. Let me ask you on, on that very theme. Uh, my sense is that China felt, and you talk about not taking responsibility at the time of the Industrial Revolution for staying at the head table. But my sense is that China felt, at least in, in the two world wars, as if there were foreign intrusions into their country that stopped them and that they want to refute that. Uh, I remember watching a film. I, I study where, wherever I was an investor. I would read novels and poems and watch the films. And I remember being alerted by a friend of mine who's very into the arts about a film called Wolf Warrior Two about China. And it was really about somebody going to go out there and go to a colonial country. I believe it was in Africa. And while there was an injury because the man's wife had been murdered, he was, he was kind of starting out on revenge, but he wasn't really about revenge. He was about stopping oppressors from bothering those people. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the box office explosion an attraction to that movie, and I believe the closing credits came with an oration that comes out of the text of a Chinese passport that was talking about what you might call global brotherhood. And it seemed to invigorate when all of my Chinese friends loved that film. So th there was something that I think relates to feeling like they're getting out from under foreign oppression, not just rebuilding themselves that's in this mix and may contribute to the false ideologies relative to what might be achievable. Well, I think you're on to something and I allude to it in the book. I mean, um, you know, just like, you know, we use China as a scapegoat to um, mask our own inability to save uh, and um, blame China for the trade deficits that arise out of that. Yeah, the Chinese need a scapegoat too. Um, who was responsible for China's <clears throat> failure uh, to maintain its absolutely dominant position as the world's leader in technology and innovation? But China chose to, uh, to stay closed and to look inward during this period where the Industrial Revolution uh, created the greatest increase of national income uh, of, of in the West that any economic um, system had ever experienced. China chose not to participate in the Industrial Revolution. And they want to blame the invasion of, uh, uh, you know, by uh, their territory, by, you know, on Japan or on Europe, on the Opium Wars, the eventual occupation of Manchuria by the Soviet Union. They want to blame others for their own failure to stay on the edge as the world's leader in technology and innovation. Um, that's a pretty convenient uh, excuse and again an example of um, many of the false narratives that I uh, end up focusing on in this new book. And when you, how would I say, uh, you see the state of these two false narratives and then you see the introduction of the Ukraine and Xi Jinping, not just staying out of the fray, not just wishing it would be reconciled, but actually joining one team as it's presented. First of all, is that accurate? And secondly, why would he do that? I know a lot of Chinese people that are criticizing the 
damage that it could to do, do to China in the world system in the medium term by siding with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I, I do. You know, I have to confess that you know the book was complete um, and had been through multiple rounds of editing, and um, we were you know a few months away from sending it off to the <laughs> proverbial uh, printing press when you know Putin invades Ukraine, uh, and he invaded uh, Ukraine three weeks after he had signed this quote. Uh, unlimited partnership agreement with uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation. So I I had to go back and rework um, a significant amount of the book to uh, bring this into the uh, the development of my themes. Why why was this important? Is what you're asking. Um, I, it goes again back to the the false narratives of the the Chinese dream. I think that Xi Jinping had figured out that China needed a partner to become a great power. It really could not do it on its own. And the original sort of model that he proposed uh, as for partnership was a special relationship with the United States that he rolled out at the Sunnyland Summit to Barack Obama um, uh, in, um, I want to say, uh, uh, 2000, um, I'm, I'm sort of blanking on that, maybe somewhere in the 2008 to 2010 period when, when they met at, at Sunnylands. And it was so, it was called the uh, the new model of great power or major power relationships. And Xi Jinping had the audacity to say at that point to Barack Obama that um, China should be uh, already at the table with the U.S. with this new model of major uh, country relations. And um, that would allow him to sort of jumpstart his aspirational uh, goals to uh, be at the table uh, with the U.S. Uh, Obama, unfortunately, did not just tell him, hey, this is a really dumb idea. He played along with it. And so it got a lot of traction uh, in <clears throat> sort of the global power uh, community. But then ultimately, as we went into conflict with uh, China, uh, China dropped the idea, but not the, the, the notion that it needed a partner uh, to be great again. And so uh, Russia uh, is uh, Xi Jinping's second attempt to find the partner that would allow him to sit at the table uh, as a great partner, compatible with his uh, um, aspirational goals for 2049, uh, when China is um, uh, sort of deserving uh, of that title. And it was, I think, quite honestly, Rob, it could end up being um, Xi Jinping's most serious strategic blunder uh, because, uh, number one, he has to underestimated uh, where this war was going and what it meant for um, uh, the West to unify uh, in countering this uh, uh, horrific uh, and tragic uh, conflict. Uh, and <clears throat> secondly, it raised the distinct possibility that if China were to support its new unlimited partner in any way whatsoever, whether it was through direct military assistance or financial assistance or technical advice, then it too would be judged guilty uh, of the same types of war crimes that the West is accusing uh, the Russian Federation of committing. And China uh, would be judged guilty by association with the world's pariah state, uh, the Russian Federation. And uh, I've urged in things that I've written that Xi Jinping just say, wait a second, 
this was the wrong deal, it's over. Uh, and, um, you know, I think this would actually play uh, uh, over the long run to his advantage in an extraordinary way. Uh, Vladimir Putin would obviously be uh, irritated, to say the least. But Xi Jinping would be admired as a global statesman, which is precisely what he's seeking to do as part of his aspirational objectives of the leader of an ascending uh, great power. Who knows? You know, if he, if he were to force Putin to end this war in Ukraine, there's good reason to think that he might even be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I'm, I'm putting the, the cart before the horse there, but uh, this is a devastating war and China has no moral grounds for standing um, together with its new partner who is prosecuting this war in <clears throat> such a um, horrific manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because the echoes in what you're saying Say, for instance, Xi Jinping gave speeches a couple of times at the World Economic Forum, the Davos meeting, and he did speak in a very, what you might call, aspirational global partnership way. It it wasn't nationalistic bellicosity or what have you. And uh, I know it's that time some people, particularly European friends, said to me they thought that he was more on track particularly as related to climate, technological platforms, global governance, than was Donald Trump. And uh, But th- the wind has gone out of those sails in light of this recent episode, for sure. Well, you know, in, in, a, in, in a couple of weeks, in, in January of 2017, Xi Jinping addressed the Global Economic Forum in Davos, truly uh, with a stirring defense of leading uh, and committing to globalization. And, um, you know, uh, literally uh, in that same month, uh, Donald Trump was sworn in as our 45th president uh, with a strident um, support of protectionism uh, that was um, very much aligned with his uh, anti-China uh, view in damaging American companies uh, and workers. The contrast couldn't have been sharper, but, um, you know, the the question you're raising is that Xi Jinping squandered uh, that that capital, that commitment to globalization by his new partnership with uh, Russia. And I think there's a big risk of that uh, if if he stays uh, wedded uh, to uh, the Russian Federation uh, and the war that it is continuing to conduct to this very day. And I sense uh, in 2019, I ran a conference with Justin Lin at Beijing University about China and the development of Africa. And what I'm saying is relative to the hopefulness at that time, the polarity between the U.S. and China, the Ukraine, energy prices, the slowdown in growth, the despondency about global leadership in the global south now, as though all of these things are happening and we're suffering and we don't think anybody's paying attention. is It's very demoralizing in all of the conversations I have in those regions of the world. And I don't know, it, means, it doesn't mean they pick a side. They're saying, when are you guys going to get over this arm wrestle and get back to work on what really needs to be done? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, we talk about deficits, um, whether they're trade deficits or technology deficits, but suffice it to say we have a real global leadership deficit and we're all suffering uh, from uh, that at, at this point in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I trace it back to the... <clears throat> the psychology of the false narratives. We'd rather blame others for our problems and work together uh, and address our common issues. 
I think uh, what, what I found, I guess, is we're turning the corner here. The diagnosis of the false consciousness in both places, the, the, what you might call the impetus for demonization, the critical failure, perhaps, in siding with Putin. But we, we, I feel compelled to ask you, having read your book, how do we turn the corner? What do we build from here? What do we build in technology? What do we build in climate? What do we build in global governance that reinvigorates confidence in the world system and its potential for the future? Well, I end the book with a, a few chapters that lays out a plan for resolving this conflict. And I learned, one of the th first things I learned back in the old Wall Street days is that uh, I was always good at identifying problems, but my clients who were smarter than me always said, you know, if you're so smart, what's your solution to the problem? And that stuck with me um, uh, for basically all of my career on Wall Street and my um, efforts at um, spending all these years subsequent to that in, in academia. So I start out with a, the idea that this is a dysfunctional relationship. It's a relationship problem that requires a relationship solution to bring both nations together in solving this common problem. So the, the book really stresses three legs to the stool uh, in um, uh, addressing uh, this uh, conflict. And I'll just tick them off for you as briefly as I can. The first one is um, moving from distrust to trust. Um, we're not going to get anywhere if we continue to blame the other uh, and question the commitment that the other has to, uh, you know, a resolution of this conflict. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can um, uh, pick immediately, reopening of consulates, um, relaxing visa restrictions, relaxing uh, restrictions on <clears throat> the operation of uh, uh, NGOs, um, you know, a number of small things that can be done with the stroke of the pen, uh, pen, the pen. Then there are three tough issues that are both, all, all of them mutually beneficial for us to address that you uh, were hinting at, um, climate change, uh, global health, especially in an era of pandemics, and cybersecurity. Uh, these are enormously important from a uh, standpoint of the mutual interest of, of both nations. And we, we certainly need to address them for the future of our own systems, as well as for the future of the planet. And, you know, I tick them off. I go through them uh, in the book. We've made a little bit of progress on climate, uh, but a lot more needs to be done. Um, we've made no progress in global health because we're fixated on the COVID-19 blame game, who's responsible for it. Um, and we've made virtually no progress in addressing um, uh, cybersecurity. So we've got plenty of work to do uh, to move from distrust uh, to trust. But I'd say, you know, again, the place to start is with picking some of the low-hanging fruit. The second um, leg to the stool is changing the perspective away from the zero-sum bilateral uh, trade conflict, which gets us nowhere because of the points we described earlier and the savings disparities between the world's most serious deficit saver, America, and the world's largest surplus saver, uh, China. We need to move away from um, this zero-sum uh, bilateral framework to a positive sum uh, market opening growth framework. And my favorite device to achieve that 
is to uh, resurrect uh, negotiations on a bilateral investment treaty, which were 95% of the way done before the uh, election of Donald Trump in uh, 2016. Uh, bilateral investment treaties, or BITs, open markets, um, expand growth opportunities, uh, and um, can be written in a way that addresses many of the tough structural issues that divide the U.S. and China, like innovation policy, forced technology transfer, subsidies, sustainable enterprises, even some of the cyber issues. So it gives us a pro-growth, positive-sum framework rather than a zero-sum, anti-growth framework that we are hooked on. And then the final piece of the, uh, 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 the plan uh, is um, uh, what I call a, <clears throat> uh, a new organization that brings together uh, the U.S. and China in dealing with our relationship on a full-time basis um, rather than doing it, you know, episodically or serendipitously through summits like we had uh, a few weeks ago in Bali between Xi Jinping and uh, Biden or earlier efforts that we used to call strategic and economic dialogues. I want a full-time organization that works 24-7 on all aspects of the U.S.-China relationship. I call it a U.S.-China secretariat, uh, staffed equally by large complements of professionals on both sides of the relationship uh, with a, uh, a broad remit focusing on uh, economics and trade, um, uh, human rights and health, uh, cyber, <coughs> and innovation policy. And I detail it uh, uh, in the final chapter of the book uh, that you know, has um, you know, a number of robust functions that focus on a developing a new collaborative model for working together rather than on a scapegoating uh, model that drives us apart. And I think these three legs of the stool, some might have difficulty with them, but I welcome the chance to hear uh, anyone's alternative. The point is, Rob, the current approach has not worked. It will not work in the future. Uh, we've gone from one stage of conflict to another, and we need to address um, this conflict before it is too late. Yes. Well, I guess in... Uh coming down the stretch here, I want to express some appreciation. I walk around a lot and I often hear songs in my mind. And I often recently have been hearing Barry Maguire's song, The Eve of Destruction. <laughs> As I started to read your book, I heard Diana Ross, theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going To? But as I finished the book, I heard U2's song called One. And we have to carry each other. We have to carry each other. You are in a country as a very well-known and successful individual at an elite university taking a stand. And I spoke at the outset about the invisible republic of the spirit. And this man, Stefan Zweig, came up with that name in relation to Romain Roland in his work in Europe during the interwar period. And I thought to quote something about him that reminds me of the journey that you're on. He said, this man of letters has preserved us from what would have been an imperishable shame had there been no one in our days to testify against the lunacy and the hatred. To him we owe it that even during the fiercest storm in history the sacred fire of brotherhood was never extinguished. The world of the spirit has no concern with the deceptive force of numbers. In that realm one individual can outweigh a multitude, for an idea never glows so brightly as in the mind of the solitary thinker. 
And in the darkest hour, we were able to draw consolation from the signal example of this poet. One great man who remains human can forever and for all men rescue our faith in humanity. I know that not only are you that poet, but you lead a tribe at an extraordinary university of young people. And as we all know, those of us like you and I have taught later in life, sometimes the best way to learn is by teaching. But I, I feel a sense of possibility and promise from what you've had the courage to build and say, and from the tribe of brilliant young students that can join your secretariat and help us make our way to the future. Well, thank you, Rob. <clears throat> Those are very uh, kind and, and meaningful uh, words. I resonate also with your um, reference to, to music. It's something that's always been important to me as, as well. Uh, but, you know, it, I would be um, neglecting one thing if I just didn't come back to the title of the book, Accidental Conflict. Um, the point of writing a book about an accidental conflict was that the, the tensions have gotten so bad right now, uh, driven by the high octane fuel of these politically convenient false narratives, that it doesn't take much of a spark to ignite the fuel and take us into a, a realm that would be far more destructive than any aspect of the road we've traveled. Look no further than what happened in August of this year after Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, to Taiwan. You may say, well, she had every right to go there. But the Chinese marshaled a military response, the likes of which had never been seen uh, in um, the modern history of Taiwan. And the possibility of a military accident um, with that type of power assembled is not something that we can or should take lightly. That's only one example. But in a realm of conflict escalation, uh, the chances of an accident are growing. They are not receding. And um, uh, that was the warning uh, that really told me that the, uh, the crafting of this book was increasingly urgent. And I pushed the publisher as hard as I could to get this book out as quickly as possible, because I think our time is growing short. This relationship is not uh, in a healthy place. And that's China's fault. It's our fault. But it's the fault of the two of us in our unwillingness to work in a collaborative cooperative way. And I've laid out a model to restore cooperation and collaboration that may not be perfect, but it sure as heck beats uh, the approach that we're both on right now. Yes. And uh, I've done a lot of reading. I, uh, as an undergraduate at MIT, I spent a lot of time studying arms control and disarmament issues and the notion of the cost of that kind of mistake, like you mentioned in Taiwan or could happen around the Ukraine and the implications, not just for those regions, but for the upper atmosphere and life on earth. And, and by the way, I would, I would also offer, if somebody drops a nuclear bomb, the heightened fear from that episode is gonna make it much, much harder for us to reestablish the collaboration. The armor that comes with fear is what we have to work to disassemble now. And I, so I think, how would I say, the urgency of what you've created is very important. And thank you from me, from my four children, from my three grandchildren. You've done a great service. Thank you, Rob. We can only do what we can do. And then, you know, we have to throw these ideas out there and hope that they get some traction. Well, 
I want to help you with the traction, but thank you for the ideas. We'll have to uh, we'll have to meet again, and uh, I want to urge everybody to take this book. It don't it doesn't feel like a Christmas parable, but it might be the best gift you could get or give in this holiday season. <laughs> thank you again, Steve. Thank you, Rob. Pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure speaking with you too. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing